0: (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, guys. Good to see you, too. Uh, For those of you who are guests, hello, my name is Ryan Longfield. I have been on sabbatical for, I think it's six months. I keep saying I haven't preached in six months, and people go, no, I don't think it's been that long, but I'm pretty sure it's been since July, Um, and uh, and that's six months. So it's been mildly restful, I'd say. Uh, Sabbatical same root word as Sabbath. It's supposed to be really restful and all that stuff. I more feel like I've been fighting giants at the end of last, uh, last year. But uh, I'm here standing, and I'm here with y'all, and I'm excited to preach. I w- actually wasn't scheduled for today, but I said, man, it's been too long. I want to get up there, and I want to start sharing again. And I feel full of the Lord and excited to share with you guys. So um, before we jump into the word that I had for us today, I wanted to share a little bit about what, what was going on in worship. Uh, One of my hearts for this community is for us to start to be students of worship in a way where we know what's going on in the spirit when we're going through a worship experience. Um, One of the reasons why in this church we spend so much time on the front end of the service worshiping is one, because it's an ends in itself. Even if it accomplished nothing more than just worshiping the perfect one for 45 minutes, that is plenty of reason to do it. Uh, but two is that a lot is going on in worship. Uh, it's, it's a way of inviting the presence of God into our midst in a manifest kind of way, in a, in a way that is made known to us. And in the scriptures, it talks about where two or three are gathered together. There he is with them. And it's kind of like, well, isn't he omniscient? Isn't he omnipresent? Isn't he everywhere, all-knowing? Like it, it, what does that mean that he's there with you? but there's an extra special way that he comes in corporate worship, and he comes in a lot of different ways to do different things. It's like Nancy was talking about our mission or our, you know, like a, what's, what's God doing in the next season of our church life. It's like he's got plans. He wants to do stuff. I think that's true in worship too, right? Like the more that we can come in on Sunday being like, oh man, I wonder what God's going to do today in, in our church service. Like what's could be anything. Like, I wonder, is he going to heal somebody? Is he going to soften hearts to the place where he breaks off strongholds and sets people free? Is there going to be this joy or community? I mean, he can do so many different things that are in his heart. And so I think what I'd encourage you to start to do, if, you don't, if you're not already, is become a student of worship. Because God loves to use worship to do a bunch of different things. And so from time to time, what I'm going to try to do is when I feel like God's doing something in worship, I'm going to share that with you so that we can start to go like, oh, we're starting to experience these things together. And I think our expectation for what God does in our midst will rise as we do so. So today, um, what I felt like God was doing is I felt like he was warming and softening hearts. Um, I don't know if you've ever felt this way. I imagine so. Uh, there's times with God where you feel like your heart is supple and soft and he could say anything under the sun to you and you'd be like, yes, Lord, I'm in and I'm doing it with joy, right? Like that's one end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum is like kind of a rusty, crusty, kind of hard heart where he could tell you I love you and you'd be like, yeah, whatever. It doesn't even need to be a hard word. It's just any word. It's like, man, you're the apple of my eye. And it's like, whatever, God everybody's the apple of your eye and Jesus. It's nothing special to me. <laughs> and I think like all of us have been in those places too where you're kind of just like, man, you just know that anybody could set you off with any kind of word and there's not a prosperity of soul is one way you could think about it. It's the opposite of prosperity of soul. It's like crusty and, you know, the fruits of me, not the fruits of the spirit. And I feel like a lot of times what happens in worship, and what I felt like God was doing today, was by his spirit, because spirit is an act of worship, worship is an act of a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing. God, you know, Jesus in John chapter 4 said, I, the, the Lord seeks worshipers. Not worship, by the way, worshipers. He seeks worshipers people that will give themselves to him in adoration. And the type of worship that he longs for is one that is in spirit and in truth. It's accurate to who he is and it exalts the true one. And it's also a deeply spiritual thing. And so oftentimes spiritual things are mysterious to us. But in worship, God often does mysterious things like softens a heart. He takes a crusty heart and by his spirit, he ministers to you. And you enter in a place where you're rigid towards him. You don't have the fruits of the spirit. You're not in a place of prosperity of soul. And he does this over time while you think you're just sitting there with your hands in the air worshiping the Lord. He's doing a deep inner work. And I felt like he was doing that today. And so if, if you feel like sometimes you're in that place, the thing that I'd encourage you to do is get really good at inviting the Lord to do the work that he just did for us in this place. It doesn't need to just be something that happens here in a corporate setting. The same thing can happen for you at work where you're like, man, I'm not in a good place. I need to go into a conference room and just like lock myself in there for 15 minutes and ask the Lord to soften me on the inside because, man, I oftentimes feel pretty out of control with my internal state and my heart, right? And the Lord has tools for us to get into a good place. And worship and adoration and rejoicing is one of those. And so in worship today, even before we got into that last part of the the set, which was like exactly in line with this, which is like, just keep me here until we're one, is what the song said. Just keep, man, just like keep me in this place of worship. I will stay here giving you glory, giving you myself, the best that I have in adoration to you. Can you just, like, do some supernatural work of making us one while I do so? And that's exactly what he does often in worship, and that's what I felt like he was doing today in worship. So um, that's pretty cool. That's a good start for a Sunday at the, at the beginning of the year. Um, but I would encourage you just generally to, like, start to notice what do you feel like God's speaking and doing in worship And allow him to go outside of kind of like your standard boxes of, wait, aren't we just singing like four songs and then cutting off sharp? You know, like, no, God's doing something every week in worship. And so we'll start talking about that as we go. Okay, so uh, I've been given the mandate to kick off this next portion of our series. Uh, We've been going through uh, our different core values for the year. And the one that we are on today is responsible for the bride, responsible for the bride. And uh, I don't know about you, but when I think of responsibility, immediately I think of the word my. (laughs) My. Think about, just take a second to inventory. What are you responsible for in your life? Responsible for my kids. I'm responsible for my wife. I'm responsible for my finances, right? Like, I fe- correct me if I'm wrong, if something came to your mind that's not something that you feel a sense of ownership over, then, then correct me, but I, but I think that there's a very close tie to this sense of ownership in your life and the things that you feel responsible for. So your health, maybe. If we were gonna put church on the end of that kind of idea, does that feel natural or unnatural to you in the way that you think about ownership and the way that you think about responsibility? When we when we think about the idea of being responsible for his bride, the way this whole topic starts out is this word responsible, which there's an old... Uh, Seinfeld episode on this, forgive me for no, somebody, for people who have never watched a Seinfeld episode, because I'm dating myself here, but he basically says, like, why does everybody want to be responsible? As soon as something goes wrong, somebody walks in and says, who's responsible? Right. Thanks for the front row Okay. here. I, I'm back, everyone, from sabbatical, as are my jokes that get very few laughs. <laughs> We were actually laughing about this. Bethany was over earlier today, and we were talking about how uh, my jokes don't get any laughs. and <laughs> It's all good. It's all good. Um, but the, the place where this topic starts is this sense of responsibility. It's like, if you're going to be responsible for something, you need to have a sense of ownership over that thing. And I would propose to you that one of the things that's at the core foundational challenges in the American church is the lack of a sense of responsibility for the bride that exists, I would say, chronically in the body of Christ. When something goes wrong in the church, I think oftentimes our response is far more something of Criticism or judgment, probably, or yeah, oh yeah, you know, like churches are messed up, oh, oh, another pastor burns out, or whatever it is. It's more of a, I'm sitting on the balcony observing something that I'm just fine being a critique of far more than I'm in my own household and something just happened, and am I going to do something about this, or am I going to, you know, not? Does that, does that feel accurate to you guys? As I've wrestled with this topic, funny enough, like I've kind of challenged myself as to, you know, of course I feel a sense of ownership and responsibility of this church, but I think the next step for me, and I would say, you know, for us as we grapple with this topic, is what does it look like to feel a sense of ownership and responsibility for the global church as well? And so I wanted to start uh, when we start wrestling with this passage with uh, Acts chapter 2. Because anytime you start talking about church, you have to start in Acts chapter 2. It's just a general rule for pastors. And so we're going to put Acts chapter (laughs) 2 up on the screen here. And we're going to start with verse 40. What's happened here is this is right after the experience of Pentecost, where there's 120 in an upper room. The Spirit of God comes in power and fire, and it rests on them. They start speaking in other tongues. And then from that point, they go out, and they start doing the work of Jesus, Uh, These are clearly the disciples, the apprentices of Jesus, and now they're doing the works that Jesus did. And the city's kind of like, they're in Jerusalem, the the city's on fire. The city's like, what is going on? Uh, These guys and, and gals are going nuts. Okay, so verse 40. This is Peter speaking, it's the end of a sermon that he's giving. It says, with many other words he warned them, and he pleaded them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to the number, their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe in, uh, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anybody who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I'm going to jump over to chapter 4 because it continues with a very similar theme. In verse 32 it says, All the believers were in one heart, were one in heart and in one in mind. No one claimed to have any of their possessions as their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace grace was so powerfully at work in them all that that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money for the sale, and put it at the apostles' feet, and distributed it to anybody who has need. There's a number of things in this passage that I feel like uh, we can unpack and, and we can dig into. The first one to me that I'm sure probably strikes you in the same way is uh, you have people selling their inheritances, their plots of land that they've worked their entire lives to get. Uh, you know, maybe it was passed down, maybe they worked for it. Uh, you know, Who knows how they acquired it, but they have these massively valuable things that have taken a lot of work in their generations to attain and they're coming into the family of God that's newly birthed and they're like laying it down at the leader's feet and saying, backing up and saying, do whatever you want with it. And what the leaders were doing was saying, well, this is the family of God. The way this works is that we take care of one another and so we're going to ensure that there's not a single need in our, entire, in our entire body. The thing that I wanted to start with was what kind of ownership do you need over something to come and take your entire nest egg and place it at the feet of some leaders and say, yeah, like, use it to, to do what you, you need to do in our community. That's a, a crazy amount of, of buy-in to the thing that's happening there. So just to put some of you at ease who may have come from abusive church backgrounds or something like that, that's not the application of this message. Like, you can, you can, keep, you can keep your stuff for now. <laughs> but think about that the 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 level of commitment that you would need to the thing that's going on and commitment for the long term not just for the short term right like if you're like hey you know next week maybe I'll go to some other congregation and you know in Greece and I'll leave the Jerusalem church and go do this thing down the road or whatever it is like this is all the signals of very like long-term heartfelt, I'm-all-in commitment to the thing that's going on here. And one of the things that's, as, as we grapple with kind of like the concept of church generally, is one of the interesting things about the, the word that Jesus used for his assembly of people was this word "ecclesia," And it, it's, the, it's the Greek word for, for church that's translated church. But what it really means is a group or an assembly that's called out. It's called out from. And so, so for, for some of you who have done like Greek word studies, it might remind you of another word that means the same, a very similar thing, but more of a, an individual side of things than a, a, a corporate side of things. The word holy. The word holy means... You set something apart. It's it's taken out from the fold, and it's designated for a divine and unique and specific purpose. And so it's it's really interesting. The holy ones is what Paul refers to the saints. That's what that means. He calls the individuals in the church the saints of Christ. The gathering of those are the gathering of the the holy ones. They're, They're the ones that are pulled out from the world to exist in this thing that's called church. And it's interesting, in in Peter's uh, sermon that we just read in verse 40, it says, this corrupt generation. You've been saved from this corrupt generation. As As I was thinking about this, I feel like in this modern age, calling this generation corrupt in the church You'd get a lot of people going like, Ur, I don't like that. You know, like, that, that doesn't feel right. And I, and I agree with you in some senses if you're feeling that. That to stand here and look out and be like, oh, it's corrupt. It feels judgmental. It feels separated from. I, I, I think there, there is a, uh, an aspect that I think that that's okay right? Like, we're not called to judge the world. Uh, We can judge the the acts of the world and and call them wicked, but we're not supposed to judge the people of the world. So, I think there's an element of that that, like, is true and is right, and I think the church has been judgmental in a way that's toxic. Uh, And so, yes, but park that over here for a second. There is a very clear call as a Christian to come out of a world that you no longer are a citizen of, if, if the world feels too natural to you, it probably means that you've set up your citizenship in a place that you're not intended to. And so by the nature of being called a holy one or by the nature of being in the church, when we talk about the church, the church is kind of like Noah's Ark where it's a place of salvation that's set apart from the chaos that's going on out there. And I think we, as the church, oftentimes don't want to be um, exclusive, bordered off. Um, uh, like we're so different from those people out there in, in some senses. But I actually want to challenge that notion right at the core. The whole, the whole nature of the people of God, the church of God, if you look at the entire Bible forever, what God has been intending to do is gather this group of people that is dedicated and given to him, the one true God, as his people for almost all of history. And it's like we're in this world where people are turning away from God left and right, choosing to have uh, our happiness and us at the center of everything that we do, And the nature of the church is us stepping out of that and saying, there's a better way. There's a better way, and God is my Father. Jesus is my Lord. I live not by my own strength. I live by the power of the Spirit. I live for love of other people, not for my own self-satisfaction. There's all of these unique things that have to do with what the church is Supposed to be that is incredibly different from the world. In God's design, the church is this place of light and love and joy and thriving, and out there is chaos and sin and deception, and all of that is going on. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily like, you know, how most of us would articulate what the church actually is. But in the design, it's important to start just by saying there should be be an us and them type of thing where the world can look inside the church and go, oh, wow, that's what the kingdom of God looks like in action. And so this idea of commitment that we see in Acts chapter 2 from the very beginning where they're like laying down all their possessions, you have to understand they're feeling like we've just found it. The Spirit of God just fell, and this is it. This is the thing that God's doing. What else would I do with my possessions? Of course I'm going to lay them down. This is God's move. And this, this idea of commitment is just, it's baked into how the church is operating so much in it. It says they were added to their number, the 3,000. The funny thing is, is their core base was probably like a few hundred people. Imagine getting 3,000 new people on a base of a a few hundred. It's like you're creating the culture of that group as you go. But I wanted to talk about this idea of commitment because I think if we're going to talk about being responsible for the bride, it starts with a personal commitment to a local church. So sometimes when people come into our midst, they say, oh, why do you guys do membership? And we say, because it's really, really important to know who's with us and who's not with us as we're doing this. We're doing the real work of God. We're the body of Christ. Can you imagine any other organization where it was ambiguous in terms of like, are you in or are you out? That's productive even in the slightest degree. Any other organization. Like think about school. You know, it's like, yeah, I guess I'm going to to Cal. Sometimes, but sometimes I go down and I want to see my parents, and so then I go to UCLA. It's like so wild, right? It doesn't even make any sense. Or like, how about your workplace? Like, they extend you an offer, and it's like, okay, you know, here's, here's the offer. Of course, if you work here, it means, you know, you're not working uh, at all these others. Wait, wait, wait. Weird. You want me to like, like, commit to you 40 hours a week? That's just so strange like, yes, and here's your job description, like, w- we've got to get stuff done here, we need to know who's on board and who's, like, doing this thing. Um, it doesn't work in any other capacity, but somehow we take that and we apply to the body of Christ, and it's like, oh, that's weird. You know, you go to a football game and people are painted blue and they've got their hands in the air with, you know, their shirt off going crazy for guys throwing a pigskin down at a lawn, <laughs> and you see half of that in church, and it's like, whoa, those people are so wild. Like, why is their worship so expressive? It's like, it's God. Like, what we're doing here is we're exalting the Holy One, right? <laughs> Depth in anything in life starts with a commitment. Depth in anything in life starts with a commitment. And so whether it's this place or some other place, if you're going to be serious about your walk with God... And a core part of that walk with God is being responsible for his bride. Doing it isolated by yourself in your prayer room praying for the global church, that is not what God had in mind when he was talking about being a part of the body of Christ. Being the, the lone floater, you know, where you're just cruising around and I, I just do my own thing and like, you know, I'll do my spiritual buzz thing and worship here and then I'll kind of go home. And that's not, that's not anywhere in his book. And, uh, and so it starts with commitment. The second thing that we see in this Acts chapter 2 passage is deep affection. Deep affection. <laughs> so we were, uh, we were just up visiting the Kuniyoshis in Reading. I know. Oh, the Kuniyoshis, they were members of this church for a long time. Uh, and one of the things that I love about going up to Bethel Church in Reading is that there's a rejoicing and a joy that exists when you walk through that place that is just really palpable and profound. Uh, where you find criticism of something that's going on, whether and, and criticism's okay, right? Where you find, like, criticism of something that's going not exactly right, it's so safe there because it's so cloaked in this broader... Affection for the people of God, the move of God, and the church of God. Have you ever been friends with um, somebody that's like super critical, and and you feel like they're picking you apart all the time, and you're like, yeah, yeah. In in some cases, in some cases, it's justified. And, And in other cases, it's not. (laughs) Um, Criticisms and observations of what can be improved, they're safe in an environment where you know that the overwhelming disposition is one of, I love you, I believe in you. I see you clearly. Uh, If any of you are in leadership uh, in any capacity, you'll know when you give somebody feedback, whether they feel safe or not. If they feel received and accepted by you holistically, then you can provide them feedback that's very direct. If they don't, you have to be very careful with the way that you provide your feedback because it just lands wrong. It, it, It feels inappropriate. To have somebody who you don't know really cares about your best give you a sharp word of correction. Like, I, I, I think we should aspire to have an internal place where we could receive a word of correction for almost anybody and not get offended. But that's not the way it generally works. And honestly, when I hear people in the church that are mostly just critical of the church, but I never hear the, the, the praise and the celebration of the things that are going on, it's extremely hard for me to hear people's feedback. When members of this church come to me and they're like, man, like, I love the ark. Like, I love this, I love this, I love this. I do have a challenge in this area. I'm like, all day long, let's talk about it. There's plenty of challenges to go around here. This is a very imperfect church, right? Uh, So let's talk about it. If it just comes without the, the affection and the ownership, it feels inappropriate. It feels like, wait, what? Like, I don't trust the way you see because you don't see all of this as well. So immediately, I'm skeptical of the way you see holistically, and so when we think about how we're responsible for the bride in a way that gives us a real sense of ownership, and the way that we should be responsible for this thing, it's very important for us to to feel like we have eyes to see the best parts of what goes on here, global church, any church you go to. I remember this one time uh, we were this was a long time ago, probably like 20 years ago or something. There was a Unity in Christ event at First Presbyterian Church. And, uh, you know, the, the roots of the Ark were kind of, uh, we don't like church. We're going to do something different. And so this place, for those of you who are new, started as a, uh, a house of prayer because we didn't want to be a church. We didn't know what we wanted to be. We just didn't, we knew we didn't want to be a church. So it's like very rebellious in kind of the roots. we like, yeah, we're better than that stuff, you know. We can pray and fast for a long time. They can't, you know, whatever it was. And, and so, so uh, I went to this Unity in Christ event, and I was sitting there, and I felt like the worship team didn't feel that anointed to me. Uh, like, th- this... I'm being honest with you, right? Th- this, they were doing this kind of rotation of prayer thing, and, uh, and, you know, this one group went, and I was like, man, like... I feel like this prayer is so dead. You know, like there's no life on this stuff at all. And I was, like all of this judgment going on in my heart, right? And it was just like, it, it, it was a different critique with each group that went through too. You know, I was like, oh yeah, like that group, oh yeah, they don't know how to pray. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that group, you know, they don't know how to worship whatever it was. And it was like this judgment against my own value system, of course, and I was sitting there, and I was starting to get really, like, agitated inside. And I remember the Lord just, like, inviting me. I'm surprised he didn't just strike me down in the, in the <laughs> pew, to be honest. But he's so gracious and kind. He, he just invited me. He said, hey, like, basically, would you like to see how I see? And I was like, oh, yeah, because, like, I'm pretty sure the fruit of the Spirit is not irritation and judgment, <laughs> you know. And that's what I got going on inside. So it's probably not you. And so I just like gently asked the Lord like, hey, can you give me eyes to see as you see this situation? And sure enough, pretty much immediately, the next group comes through and they pray and it felt as dry and crusty as the one before. But what I saw was that they love the word of God. Like love the word of God, love truth. And it was just, and I felt like God saying like, isn't it beautiful that they just like love truth? Like they'll just spend so much time digging in their word and valuing the place of truth in life. Then the next one would come through and be like, it isn't amazing that they love social justice. Like that's just such a part of my heart. Like isn't that amazing that they just go and fight for, for the oppressed and the poor all the time? And then the next one comes through and a new expression of his heart was hitting with every group that came through to the point where I was like, oh my gosh, like I love the body of Christ. That is what I'm talking about as cultivating. That was, a, that was me seeing as the Spirit sees. That was me having the mind of Christ, not the mind of man. And if we're going to be in a place where we're responsible for this thing, he needs to be able to steward, like give us responsibility over these things. We need to be able to steward in a way where we see as he sees. And I'll tell you, like, this thing where 98% of the stuff that's coming out of my mouth is judgment and is criticism, I have a really hard time believing that that's the voice of our Father. If I was like that in my home, my wife would be miserable and my kids would hate me. If I was like that with my friends, I wouldn't have any. If I was like that at work, I certainly wouldn't be given charge over people by anyone who's a good leader over me. I mean, it just, it, that way of operating does not work, and it doesn't, it doesn't work in the body of Christ either. And I think when we see in verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. It's like, there's this sense of rejoicing that's going on in their midst about like, wow, I get to be caught up in the work of God. Like, wow, I get to, you know, part of his work where maybe it's like, wow, I get the privilege of selling my land so that these people can eat. Wow, God, thank you so much, right? Like, it's a totally different lens on things, and so I would encourage you through action to protect your heart and the way that you see the body of Christ. What I mean by protect your heart is it's just like a relationship, how many people have you talked to who have been like, I've been offended by the church, I'm out? Happens all the time. We need to protect that in the same way that we would protect a relationship that we're committed to. I've been my, offended by my wife a number of times too. <laughs> <No>. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But what, what do you do? You go and you work it through. You talk it through. You seek forgiveness. You extend forgiveness. You, all of the same things. This is the family of God. All of the same principles apply. We need to guard our heart towards this thing that is the beautiful bride of Christ, the church. And make sure that we're aware of what's going on inside to make sure it's this posture of, yeah, I see your faults. Of course. But man, look at this. I just love who we are and who it is as the corporate body of Christ. The last piece I think that, we, that, that I'll highlight from this Acts 2 and the Acts 4 chapter is this idea of getting in the game. They sold their land. They shared all things in common. They gave to those who had need. They go to the temple every day. They're committing to breaking the bread and prayer in house to house encouraging one another they are like all up in each other's lives this is not a you know this is not a a thing that we dabble with this is like a I'm in the game like I'm in the family and I have ownership over this thing and it could take a number of different expressions but man I'm in and so one of the things that I would encourage you to do just to kind of like make this pretty practical in this particular area is um, I'm big on goals, goal setting. Shocking to most of you, I know. (laughs) Having a goal in your life for what it looks like for you to be influential in the body of Christ is a goal that I'd encourage you to think about if you're a disciple of Jesus. I say, if you're a disciple of Jesus, because I think it kind of puts weight on my request. This is not just like a, uh, oh yeah, like, think about it. It's like, are we going to be hearers of the word, or are we going to be doers of the word? Are we going to be students, or are we going to be disciples? The difference between a student and a disciple is a disciple can learn a bunch of stuff and not do it, and is utterly failing. A student can go to class and study economics for three years and walk out and have no idea how to practically apply any of that stuff, and you get a degree and you're considered a, you know, like an expert in that field. That's a student. That's what we're used to. That's the Greek mindset. That is not the invitation of Christ. The invitation of Christ is to become a disciple, And when you're a disciple, it puts a demand on you that when your master shows you something that should be in your life that's not in your life, you don't go, oh, that's interesting. That's a good one. I'm going to pray through that one, right? It comes and you're like, oh, wow, like this was the way that Jesus taught his followers to walk. And this is how we see them walking. Like, what am I doing in my life? And so the idea of like getting in the game, again, I preempted this one by saying, you know, I'm not asking for the deed of your house, but I am asking that you think about what does it look like for you to radically love the body of Christ as non-optional? What does it look like for you to give yourself To your brothers and sisters. Your brothers and sisters. The other week we were having an all-members meeting. And if you remember, at the end of the all-members meeting, uh, Joe and Aaron said, Oh, by the way, does anybody need a car? That's awesome. That's incredible. And Larry said, yeah, I've got somebody in, in my, my sphere that needs a car. And they connect and like, that's, that's what this thing is. Like, if we all felt a responsibility over this place, we would all have our heads up looking for need and opportunity. Nobody in my family is going to suffer need, would be our attitude. And we're looking around and it's like, Oh, I just spotted a need. Like, this family needs a washing machine. Like, maybe I can't fill it, but then I'm going around and I'm talking to, like, my small group leader. Like, hey, I just found out that there's somebody in our midst who needs a washing machine, and this is, like, unacceptable for there to be continued need in our midst. Like, how do we? How can we fill this thing? Oh, it's a great idea. Like, at the next small group, like let's pray and let's see what God has on his heart. Okay, like, pray. Okay, we're gonna do a fundraiser and we're gonna get this, you know, whatever it is. Like, that sense of ownership that drives extreme generosity. Man, imagine what it would feel like if there was 200 people in here that had that kind of lens on our community. What would it look like if there was 200 people in our midst that had such a responsibility for the thing that goes on here where it's like, okay, I, this place has to be better because I'm here. Period. Like if I'm a, if I'm a member of this family and I'm filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, it has to be better cuz I'm here. So if I'm scrubbing toilets or I'm preaching the next sermon, I don't care, but I'm going to be involved in making this thing better and elevating this thing. That's what church membership means. It means I'm in. It means I'm stepping out of the world's ways of doing things and I'm stepping into this mysterious and complex and challenging thing called the body of Christ that God is doing, and, and I'm in. It's part of my new life. It's part, of my, my, it's part of my walk with Jesus. It's part of my discipleship. The other, the other one that I, per, this is like a personal dream of mine. I love this expression, radical encouragement over the people around us. That we would be, like, feel like something is wrong when somebody's not encouraged. Like, our whole orientation as a group would be like calling the greatness out of the people around us. It doesn't mean we don't talk about the hard stuff too, right? Like, that's part of being a great brother or sister and having responsibility—is that you know how to, you know, cut somebody up in just the right way. It's good stuff too. But like, the encouragement side of things should be the overwhelming tone of our community, which is rejoicing and building each other up and calling the greatness out of one another and being like, oh, man, like, I can't believe how well you do that thing. Or, man, I was praying for you the other day and I just saw this picture of you, you know, in this and it's just encouraging and building each other up. Like, it should feel like that all the time. And you know what's crazy is... Every time I go through a season where I feel especially self-conscious, I've learned this secret that the best way to stop feeling self-conscious is to become others-conscious. It, it, it's actually, it, it, it sounds ridiculous. It's incredibly profound. Are you, do you like how I just said, like, my own thing is incredibly <laughs> profound? <laughs> you weren't encouraging me, so I'll do it. I'm just kidding. Um, it, it, it actually like 100% totally works. Like most, most people, including myself, when you come up here and you're doing kind of like upfront speaking and stuff, most people have a ton of stage fright. Why? It's because you're thinking about you. And one of the tricks of like getting good at public speaking is being consumed in your audience so that you're actually not thinking about you. But one-to-one is the easiest expression of that. Some of us are some of y'all are introverts. <laughs> some, of, some of you, it's hard to be in a setting like this and it's like, you know, hey, everyone, like, turn around, meet your neighbor, start, spark a conversation. You're like, oh, gosh, I gave this. Like, I, endure church, I endure this portion of church because worship and the word are on the opposite sides of it. <laughs> um, but getting to a place where you're just consumed in the other person when you're talking to them and like actively just doing that, like, hey, tell me about you. Like, wow, like that's going on. Like, tell me more. And you're just like, you just envelop yourself in the person across from you. It's, I've found it to be the best way to lose self-consciousness in that sense. And the get in the game thing is imagine if we were in an environment like this and It's just encouraging, and people don't have self-consciousness while they're meeting one another, right? Like, you just go over, and you're like, oh, wow, like, so good to see you, and oh, like, so good to see you. For me, social situations are often stressful because I feel like I need to dance for people or I need to be self-conscious or, you know, whatever it is. And, like, let's get in the game in the sense of being a culture of radical encouragement radically building one another up, sharing the joy of Christ with one another as we're in this space as well. So I have a few invitations for you. One, I would just take an, uh, an assessment on, okay, where am I in terms of kind of like my heart posture towards the church and taking a place of responsibility with the church? And invite the Lord into wherever that place is. I found that like, pretty much everything in my life should start in prayer. There's really not an area of my life that matters in any regard that I wouldn't encourage you to have it start in prayer. And so talk to the Lord about it. Second thing is, refuse to have inaction be an option if you feel like I'm speaking to you as a disciple of Christ. Where can I best make this place better? Submit some portion of your time and your goal setting and your ambitions to making the body of Christ amazing. When I think about my ambitions, I almost think about it as a wheel And there's different portions for different things, right? It's like my family, my relationship with God, my work life, my influence on the world, my influence in the church. Like it's this wheel of things that I care about and I think are aligned to God's purposes. What sliver of that pie for you is dedicated to the advancement of the body of Christ? And what what portion do you want it to be? And then the last thing that I'd say is joy and thankfulness are a powerful weapon. Joy and thankfulness are an incredibly powerful weapon. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, it says, Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. What a great passage. I'm going to read it again. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So as we go into a time of uh, reflection now and, uh, and, and prayer, I'll invite the worship team up. What I'd encourage you to do is start whatever that journey looks like, or continue whatever that journey looks like for you in this area of being responsible for his bride. With prayer, uh, whether that be with your, you know, in your pew, if you want to come up and get some prophetic prayer from some of the prayer ministers that will be up here, they'll listen to God on your behalf and pray and declare truth over you. You can do that as well. But there's a whole, you know, in all of God's ways, His ways are perfect. So if we ever encounter an area in this setting or, you know, where you enter, when you interact with truth and it feels like, oh, that's incongruent with the way that I do life, what that is is it's an invitation into the perfect way of God. Like there's a pot of abundant life that's sitting on the other side of any invitation for you to do life differently. And in this area of the body of Christ, what I hope it doesn't feel like is another obligation or another invitation into something that I need to do more that I'm not doing. It's an invitation into abundant life. That's what this is because it's an invitation from Christ. And so what I would invite you to do is respond in prayer, respond in worship. And especially, I'm going to hit on this really big this year. Let's, let's move from being any aspect of our lives where we're just students. And let's move into a place where we're full-blown disciples. Let's not let it, let's let it not be okay to listen to 17 sermons a week and to apply none of them. So why don't we stand together and I'll pray to close us right after Pastor Suki shares some things that's been on her heart as well.
1: So, um, as Ryan was sharing, I felt like the thing that I was feeling in my heart, I was reminded of when I first became a Christian. And I remember, for me, um, this was in college, the entry into the body of Christ was a very painful thing, um, because one of the things that I struggled with really, really intensely was feeling uh, like I didn't fit in or belong. And I feel like when we talk about the body of Christ, when we talk about people wanting to join, I think what Ryan did first was really important. It set up the the importance of it biblically. Practically, though, we're talking about people entering in and forming relationships with other people. A broken person forming relationships with other broken people. And in that setting, the place where our own personal rejection and fear of being rejected is one of the things that we have to admit is a factor for ourselves and for those who are trying to come in. So whether we're on the welcoming end or this end wanting to be welcomed, I think we need to recognize that that's a very real thing and ask the Lord to give us strategies and a heart to surrender our own fear of being rejected and also our own discomfort in order to be those who can welcome and bring people in. And so um, when we start thinking about the body, when we start t- thinking about this idea of the, cr- of the church globally or whatever, don't ever forget that it is composed of little one, two, three, four, five, six people just like yourself Scared, wanting to be loved, and also wanting to g- connect and also trying to love. A lot of times the greatest obstacle for people coming in isn't whether or not they encounter God in our building. It's whether or not they encounter God within e- with each other. And so let's really ask the Lord to remove the places where the fear of rejection has kept us from the body... And has also kept other people from being able to feel welcome by us. I really feel like this is one of the greatest um, things that we can do in order to build disciples. And one of the biggest things the enemy does to try to keep people from his presence is to use us to keep people out. But let's not do that. Let's bring people in and let ourselves not stay outside either.
0: All right, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we make space in this time for you to do whatever you want to do. God, we enter into a place of rest even here and now in the work that you're doing today, God. And I thank you that when your word goes forward, God, the grace to accomplish that word also goes forward. And so God, I just invite God and ask that you would do a powerful work in the hearts and minds of the people in this place. God, we look at Acts 2 and 4 and some of the things that were going on in the early church with power and love and generosity and faith. And man, the impact to the world, the whole of Jerusalem was looking in in awe and they experienced favor from, from the outside world because of what you were doing in, the, in those midst, God. And we just say, God, that we don't have any human answers. Our rule book for life, God, it fails. God, yours, yours is the path of life, Jesus. Yours alone is the path of life, Jesus. You are, in your very person, the way, the truth, and the life. And so, God, in this time, what I ask is, Lord, that you would grab us by the hand, by the comforting and the power of your spirit, and you would walk this group into a place of walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus. Would you do a work in this church that's so powerful, God? That's so powerful, God, that the responsibility for the things that go on here and for those of those visitors in here, I pray the same blessing over them, for them in their, in their home churches, that they would feel this empowerment and this responsibility, but a joyful responsibility to take up the things of you in the body of Christ. And so we make way for you in this time of prayer. We ask that you continue to do your amazing and powerful work and we continue to worship you now in Jesus' name, amen. Come on up whenever you're ready. There'll be people ready to pray for you if you want that.